Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories from the 70s and 80s. From fondly remembered to obscure, short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or any podcast app. Or just ask Alexa to play it for you. For over a year now, Forgotten TV has been considering TV shows from the 70s and 80s, and it appears the podcast has a number of newer listeners. So I thought I would take a moment to mention who I am and the origins of the show. Your Forgotten TV host was raised on UHF reruns of Star Trek and The Twilight Zone on a black-and-white 19-inch Admiral TV, long before the average household had home video, and back when TV was ephemeral and you had to catch shows when they were on. An utter TV and media nerd, I grew up being able to recognize the great TV announcers like Danny Dark and Ernie Anderson, but not knowing their names. I recorded TV theme songs on a Panasonic cassette recorder, had Vincent Terrace's Television 1970-1980 book, wrote my own episode guides to Battlestar Galactica, Greatest American Hero, and Wonder Woman, as well as an episode of The Twilight Zone, and my first aired radio spot all in middle school. Later, I was even able to work a little in small-town radio and produce and record professional commercials and PSAs. In 2007, I started the Forgotten TV blog and, about a year ago, was inspired to resurrect Forgotten TV as a podcast. This is the 20th episode of Forgotten TV, and I wanted to cover one of my personal favorites. In January 1985, when I was 16, I got my first job working at the newly built four-screen movie theater in the small Texas town I lived in. Now, initially, I worked in the concession stand, Yes, just like Scott Creaseman in The Popcorn Kid. And like Scott, I got a kick out of recording the movie Showtimes. Creaseman, you want to record the Showtimes for this week? I know you get a kick out of that. Thanks, Mr. Brown. <laughs> when I turned 18, they made me assistant manager. This meant I spent Fridays tearing down and building up movie prints, receiving movie print deliveries, organizing trailers and assembling a trailer reel to run before each feature, and writing up the weekly candy, popcorn, and fountain drink orders. This was usually an all-day effort. Sometimes I would finish up before the manager got back from his run to San Antonio for our supplies, and I would go home. But more often, I would still be there when it was time to open box office, and would end up selling tickets for the first show before heading home. Why is all this relevant? The topic of this episode is a TV series I would watch as soon as I got home on Friday nights during the 1986 fall TV season. It was in fact based on a film of the same name that was one of the first four movies that we played at that movie theater, alongside 2010, Mickey and Maud, and Break Into Electric Boogaloo. The name of this film and TV series was Starman. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space, inviting all life forms in the universe to visit our planet. In 1984, someone accepted our invitation. Get ready. Company's coming. John Carpenter's Starman, the science fiction love story, rated PG. Released by Columbia Pictures in December 1984, Starman, the film, not the 1972 David Bowie song, is essentially a science fiction romance directed by John Carpenter that tells the story of an alien that comes to Earth in response to the invitation found on the gold phonograph record installed on the Voyager 2 space probe. The alien takes human form in the recreated body of Scott Hayden, the recently deceased husband of Jenny Hayden. The two make a cross-country road trip so he can get picked up by his people before he dies, all while being pursued by government agent George Fox. He ends up discovering love and gives Baron Jenny a son. And I'll leave the plot description at that. If you haven't already seen the film, by all means, seek it out and watch it. It is on DVD and Blu-ray, and I frequently see it on sale at the end of the year for 5 to $8. The original screenplay was written by Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon, with Dean Reisner doing uncredited rewrites. 
Michael Douglas was an executive producer of the film, which starred Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen, Charles Martin Smith, and Richard Jekyll. It also had a unique theme composed by Jack Nitsche, who also composed music for An Officer and a Gentleman and Stand By Me. The movie faced stiff competition for box office revenues. 2010, Dune, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Supergirl, A Passage to India, The River, as well as Beverly Hills Cop, the highest grossing film of the year, were all in theaters, December of 1984. The film ended up grossing $28.7 million, which meant it wasn't a moneymaker for the studio with its $22 million budget. Critically, the film was fairly well received. Bridges was nominated for the 1984 Academy Award for Best Actor for his role, as well as nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Drama Film. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, and Rotten Tomatoes reports an 81% approval rating. Writer-producers James Henerson and James Hirsch, who separately had worked on a number of TV movies and series, and had previously worked together as Henerson Hirsch Productions on five TV movies, approached Michael Douglas with the idea of adapting Starman into a series. They brought on board producers Mike Gray and John Mason, who had scripted The China Syndrome, to write a demo film to pitch the series to a network. A quickly produced 30-minute proof-of-concept presentation video was shown to ABC. More about that presentation video later. ABC ended up liking the series pitch. Normally, a network would order a fully produced arable pilot at this point, but instead, the show was greenlit with a direct-to-series order and scheduled for the 1986 fall season, and the network started to promote the show. Suppose an alien being visited the Earth. What do you want from me? Suppose he looked like you and me. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. Suppose he wanted to stay. I'll bring you the being, the creature. From the creators of the hit movie, Starman is back this fall. He came to Earth and became a man. I think you killed Paul Forrester. You took over his body. Who are you? A being more perfect than you and I. Robert Hayes is Starman. Friday, September 19th. Yes, Robert Hayes was cast as Starman slash Paul Forrester. Hayes had been acting for 11 years and had a number of one-off TV roles under his belt, including a Wonder Woman episode that featured Wonder Woman's sister Drusilla. He would be fairly recognizable to TV audiences, having co-starred in the 1979 series Angie, as well as his role on Airplane and Airplane 2, the sequel. 13-year-old Christopher Daniel Barnes was Scott Hayden. This was only his fifth acting credit. He started modeling at age eight and had been in a couple of feature films. In his early years, he was credited as C.B. Barnes. Michael Cavanaugh, who had most recently been seen in the movie Iron Eagle from that same year, was Agent George Fox, a role carried over from the Starman movie. Cavanaugh did so well on his audition for the role that the producers didn't bother bringing anyone else to the second audition for ABC. And Patrick Culleton was FSA agent Wiley, Fox's assistant seen on some episodes. The wonderful introspective music theme for this series was composed by Dana Kaproff. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you've definitely heard Dana's music before. He composed the third jazzy theme used in the Amazing Spider-Man 1970 series, the lonely harmonica-heavy theme to 1980's Bell Star, along with a number of other TV movies. Also, TV commercials for Kyocera, BMW, Taco Bell, and many more. The TV show was set in present-day 1986, which would set the events of the film in 1971. Even though the film was clearly set in present-day 1984, this really isn't addressed or dwelt on. You really have to just chalk it up to creative license and move on. The tone of the show was shifted from the science fiction romance of the movie to a father-son drama with elements of science fiction and The Fugitive thrown in. It turned out to be a thoughtful, quiet drama with very few explosions and car chases. The Starman in the person of Paul Forrester is inquisitive and disarmingly sincere. 
By the fifth episode, he shows that he displays the ability to ask simple questions that draw out the person he's talking to. In the first few episodes, you think he's ignorant of what he's doing, but by episode seven, you realize he does know. He has to, and you gain a new respect for Robert Hayes' portrayal as well as the writing of the show. The premiere episode, The Return, aired September 19, 1986 on ABC at 8 p.m. Central after a repeat of Sidekicks, the martial arts comedy with Gil Gerard and Ernie Reyes Jr. It was on against a CBS Friday night movie and a repeat of Miami Vice. The following Friday, it would be moved to 9 p.m. Central to be on against Falcon Crest and new NBC drama L.A. Law, the first of several time slot moves the show fell victim to. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Starman episodes. I've made an effort not to give away everything, but unavoidably there will be some spoilers. So if you haven't watched the series, I encourage you to do so, since it's readily available on both DVD and YouTube. Starman will continue in a moment. It's so good having you here. Oh, I'm a grandma heaven. We've loved Lucy for over 30 years. Now get ready. The queen of comedy is back. Well, let me even that up for you. Lucille Ball and Gail Gordon are together again. What did your dad say on the phone? About what? About mom moving in. The all-new Life with Lucy, Saturday, September 20th. She's something else. Too bad we don't know what it is. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. The Projection Booth podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Sidekicks and Sledgehammer will not be seen tonight. Oops. But watch for their return. Now stay tuned for Starman. Trust me. Robert Hayes, on the run. Starman, next. Starman, Episode 1, The Return. We are introduced to well-known photographer Paul Forrester, in bed with the Lady of the Weekend. Awakened by his reporter friend and evidently ex-girlfriend Liz, Paul rushes off to Mount Hawthorne in the Cascade Mountains to photograph a volcanic eruption. We are also introduced to 14-year-old Scott Hayden, waking from a recurring nightmare, holding a silver sphere left to him by his unknown father. It turns out Scott's foster parents were killed in a car accident, and he is living at a state-run orphanage. Paul's helicopter crashes in the mountains in a foolish attempt to get close-up shots of the active volcano, and Paul is killed on impact. At this same time, the Starman from the original film returns to Earth, called by the sphere he left behind 15 years earlier, and from the DNA in Paul's blood, forms an adult cloned body of Paul. He takes his clothes and gear and rescues the helicopter pilot, leaving Paul's nude body at the scene of the crash to be buried by the erupting volcano. And we are reintroduced to George Fox of the Federal Security Agency, who has been on the trail of Starman since the events of the movie about 15 years ago. The new Paul Forrester must convince Scott of who he is while remaining one step ahead of Agent Fox and crew who suspect who he really is. We're given scenes of Paul reacting to everyday situations and trying to understand American culture and figures of speech, as well as donuts and booze. At the climax of the episode, they are chased by Fox and, with the help of Liz and a silver sphere, escape on an unused monorail. We are then given the typical episode ending with Paul and Scott on foot walking the earth in their journey to find Jenny Hayden, and we have the ongoing premise of our show. Episode 1 had an all-instrumental opening sequence with no dialogue, but in Episode 2, we get the opening segment with dialogue that most people probably remember. There were actually a total of five versions of the opening segment used throughout the series. For some reason, the studio only included three of them in the DVD set. 
mother was my friend. Episode 2, Like Father, Like Son. He came to Earth, a stranger in a strange land. Why have they started off with a cold-blooded murder? Oh, God. I'm not you. Trust me. Robert Hayes, On the Run, Starman, Friday. Scott is still having trouble accepting his father's origins, and therefore his own, at the beginning of this episode. Tired of hitchhiking, they buy a used car and pick up their own hitchhikers, and end up staying in a lakeside cabin with a stressed-out woman and her daughter on the run from her husband and a disgruntled cougar. Meanwhile, Agent Fox musters more government support, enough to continue pursuing Paul. And Paul experiences lemon meringue pie. By the end of the episode, Scott and Paul seem to have come to an understanding. Episode 3, Fatal Flaw, with Patricia McPherson, probably known best as Bonnie from Knight Rider. While photographing at a motorcycle meet, Paul saves a biker from being killed. Paul and Scott move on, but are nearly run off the road by Jessica, a reckless aircraft pilot. Paul has to figure out how to help her connect with her disabled father, save the family business, and possibly save Jessica's life. Episode 4, Blue Lights. It's out of a small town. Robert Hayes is Starman. I'm really a very peaceful thing. Next. Paul and Scott are camping lakeside, and Scott tries his hand at using the sphere to start a campfire, inadvertently creating a light show above the lake that's hard to explain, and is seen by kind-hearted sheriff's deputy Charlie. Everyone in the town ends up treating him like he saw a flying saucer. Running Paul's name through the police computer lands them in a jail cell with Agent Fox on the way this time with Agent Wiley, who we saw in the first episode. In this episode, we find out Paul or Scott must see the silver sphere to operate it. And for the first time since Liz, Paul tells someone who he really is. But unfortunately, this has the potential of Charlie becoming even more of a town pariah. Paul and Scott must escape the jail, but feeling compassion for Charlie, Paul leaves him a little parting gift. I won't spoil it. You really should watch this episode. Also, in this episode, the wardrobe department starts having Robert Hayes wear two button-up shirts, one over the other, something that continues throughout the rest of the series. Episode 6, Secrets. After narrowly escaping a motel room, being pursued by Agent Fox and gang, Paul and Scott hear a news report that someone named Jennifer Hayden has escaped from a nearby mental hospital. A planted news story, courtesy of Agent Fox. They enlist the aid of a mentally ill actress, Angela, who leads on Paul, while Scott is actually captured for a short time by Fox. Scott experiences great disappointment in this episode, and Paul displays dignity and empathy to Angela, in spite of the grief she causes Scott. Episode 7, One for the Road. Friday, a new town means new friends and enemies for the alien and his son. Who are you? I'm something new under the sun. Hey, father. Starman, Friday. Settling down long enough for Scott to attend school and even join the school track team and both find a friend as well as fall in love, Finding himself for the first time in a place where he feels like he belongs, Paul ends up chaperoning a dance and getting a job at the local newspaper, as well as proving to a cynical and alcoholic newspaper man that there is something new under the sun. 
Unfortunately, one of Paul's pictures goes out over the newswire, which triggers the appearance of Agent Fox and Gang, which means they have to move on. This episode featured Robert Donner as reporter Joe Connell, Amy Dolans as Kelly, Scott's love interest, and Keith Coogan as Scott's classmate, Rick. I was totally shocked the original music was actually included on this episode. Many times the studios don't get clearances to include the original music when they were popular songs of the era. Episode 8, Peregrine. Paul comes across an injured peregrine falcon and feels compelled to help it. He encounters the captive breeding program for endangered species and learns there are sometimes two sides to an issue and no easy answers. Paul also makes his first intentional joke and learns what it means to make a mistake. In this episode, we get a further look at Starman's ability to communicate with animals. Twice in this episode, he waves his hand and tells a room full of pets to be quiet, and they all do. Also, this episode is notable in that Starman has another character hold his sphere while he makes it glow, and he telepathically relates who he is to quell her fears. Episode 9, Society's Pet, with Janet Lee. The very wealthy sister of Scott's foster father uses a $10,000 inheritance to lure Paul and Scott to her estate. Willing even to strike a bargain with Fox, she wants to remove Scott from Paul's bad influence and raise him properly. When he sees how much Scott savors the luxury offered him, Paul wonders if his son might prefer such an arrangement. In this episode, Chris Barnes's birthmark on his neck was written into the episode as a way to identify him, although they clearly used makeup to enhance it. And Paul seems to be making regular jokes at this point. Episode 10, Fever. When a common cold threatens Paul's life, he ends up in the hospital, enabling Agent Fox to catch up with him. He and Scott have to figure out how to escape, as well as help a jaded doctor gain a new perspective. Coincidentally, Robert Hayes was actually sick during the filming of this episode, so some of what ended up on screen may not have been an act. Episode 11, The Gift, with Jane Wyatt. I have to go home. Dear Paul, it's very important that I see you, so please try to make it home for Christmas. Love, Mother. I got your letter. Not for me, you didn't. Christmas used to mean something, an iron one. Just came in on your pal, Paul Forrester. Wanted for questioning by the FSA. You stay with her. I'm going to get Doc Hartley. Stella, they say this is a time for peace on Earth. I think there should be peace between us, too. She's rejecting her son, not me. Accepting an invitation to spend Christmas with the real Paul Forrester's mother, Paul and Scott walk into a hostile home and finds she didn't invite him. But she softens a great deal when Scott is introduced. He also finds a town fighting itself. Paul tries to explain his own view of death to Scott and to heal the wound between Stella and Paul before it's too late. Yes, it's the Christmas episode. Starman learns American Christmas customs and provides a little Christmas miracle to bring the town together. Whether or not you celebrate, if you don't get a little teary-eyed at the end of this one, you have no heart. This is my first holiday on Earth. What about up there? Not many trees. <laughs> really get into this. Happy Holidays. Episode 12, The System. With Tim Russ. Paul double parks outside a deli and gets arrested on an old warrant for the original Paul Forrester, who refused to violate the confidence of a fugitive from justice whom he'd photographed. He ends up sharing a cell with talkative and flashy Tyrone Washington. Agent Fox gets the red tape runaround while Paul and Scott help a weary public defendant find something new to fight for. This was before Tim Russ played in The Highwayman, and wait till you see what happens when Paul is let out of jail. And in this episode, we gain some insight as to what drives Agent Fox, and Agent Wiley gets in a few good lines. Episode 13, Appearances. Paul and Scott's pickup breaks down in a rural area, and they head to the only nearby house for help. They are reluctantly taken in by a family with a blind daughter. But Paul's compassionate act of healing the girl's injured hand after a simple accident takes on religious connotations, and the girl wants her blindness to be healed as well. This episode is notable. I 
don't want to give it away, but for the first time, we see Paul get angry and actually use a little bit of violence to somebody that deserved far worse than what he got. Agents Fox and Wiley get a break from appearing on this one, and we are just able to focus on the story. Episode 14, The Probe Scott is again attending school, and Paul takes psychological tests as part of a study to earn money, and the results draw unwanted attention, while Paul finds himself falling for the overqualified conductor of the study, a beautiful widowed astronomer who objects to military funding for her research. Meanwhile, Paul's help on a science project draws unwanted attention for Scott, which, of course, brings Agent Fox on the scene. And in this one, for the only time on the series, we have a character called Paul, Starman. I'm learning every day, Catherine, about things, about people. Do you want me to tell you what I've learned from you? Yes. That human beings are endlessly creative. They're always looking for new ways to do things, new ideas. That's what makes you so special and unique. If you lose that, you won't survive. Don't ever stop discovering and learning. I promise. Goodbye, Catherine. Goodbye. Starman. This episode was filmed at the Lick Observatory in Mount Hamilton, California, in below freezing temperatures, and Robert Hayes got sick during filming. Episode 15 Dusty. Paul and Scott pick up lounge singer Dusty on the side of the road 66 miles from Reno, Nevada. She promptly steals their car, in which they have left their spheres, clothes, and all their money in the trunk. Paul and Scott get an educational experience in Reno, complete with blueberry muffins, gambling, and comped RFB, courtesy of the original Paul Forrester. But Paul learns gambling has a dark side as he struggles with how to help Dusty with her problem. A side note on this episode, the version on the DVD set has a scene that originally contained a blue glowing light visual effect in the aired version. For whatever reason, this visual effect did not make it to the DVD episode, and you almost wouldn't miss it if it weren't for dialogue that referenced that weird blue light. Episode 16, Barriers. In a strange land. Mexico, you've taken over my life for your own purposes. Freedom won't come easily, even for Starman. Paul and Scott are on the run from Agents Fox and Wiley. Literally, after jumping into a delivery van, the duo gets separated, and Paul finds himself in Mexico and meets pregnant Tonita, and in a misunderstanding, is imprisoned by her father for a shotgun wedding. Paul must escape, and finds himself crossing the border with other illegal aliens. He has to protect Tonita from bandits as she goes into labor, of course, on the way to find her baby's father, as well as teach her to treat people with dignity and respect, no matter what their station in life. Radamus Para shows up in this episode. He was Mary Ingalls' love interest John in Little House on the Prairie, as well as a young Kane on Kung Fu. Episode 17, Grifters. With David Doyle and Bill Macy. We're getting pretty good at this three-card month. Great, now we'll never have to worry about where our next meal's coming from. It's a whole new angle for the alien and his son. Is this the greatest or what? Starman, Friday. Transporting a Rolls-Royce in Beverly Hills, the duo run into a pair of two-bit con men. But Scott has seen the sting, so he thinks he can manage them. It turns out Paul and Scott were inadvertently transporting counterfeit T-bills, which leads Agent Fox catching up to Paul at last. Although this is written as a comedy, in their first and only conversation in the series, we gain some insight as to the dark mindset of Agent Fox. Did you think that we wouldn't understand the danger to our species in allowing him to grow up? He's a child. Children are the hope of your species, not the danger. Earth's children. Human children, not your alien seed. How many more of you are there out there? 
How deeply have you infected us? How many will have to be excised to save our planet? After all these years, is that all you want to ask me? The original script called for even harsher dialogue used by Fox, telling Starman, If I could kill you now, I'd do it. That was objected to both by Robert Hayes and Michael Cavanaugh, and his lines were softened. Episode 18, The Wedding. An old friend of Paul's that owns a fishing fleet nets Paul, literally, to photograph the wedding of his daughter Anna. But it seems everything with this wedding is going wrong. And it turns out Anna and Paul had a secret past, something Papa already knew about. Paul experiences bachelor parties, weddings, and cake, and Scott gets training on the sphere to heal a black eye, because Paul simply cannot dodge a punch. Episode 19, Fathers and Sons. Next on Starman. You bug out, man! He's my dad! He's my dad, too. Got the gallery in the background, and the light's perfect. What about over there? I think it's a lot prettier, don't you? No, the light's better over here. I'm starving. Uh, I know a place... You like Mexican food? I love it. I'll show you this great place. And then you run off and lie to us. So I lied to you. Big deal. You lied to me for 15 years. I just want to be with my real father. He's not my father. I'm not going back there. You want to travel with us? Let's go. Paul and Scott arrive in Santa Barbara for a photo assignment from an old friend of the original Paul. And it seems Paul has a young stalker. The stalker, Eric, seems to be a fan of Paul's photography and inserts himself into Paul and Scott's life competing with Scott for Paul's attention. It turns out Eric is more than a fan, as he claims to be Paul's son. Meanwhile, Paul has a confrontation with this old friend over Paul's seemingly changed values. This episode was directed by Ted Lang, known for his role of Isaac the bartender on The Love Boat. Eric was played by Rodney Eastman, 19 years old at the time, playing 15, he was later in A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and numerous TV roles up to the present day. Episodes 20 and 21, Starscape 1 and 2. We're told in the movie comes true for the alien. I love you, Jenny. The pursuit and capture of Starman. The duo happen upon a painting in an art gallery in Portland that provides the first lead to finding Jenny Hayden that they have come across in a long time. The painting leads them to Albuquerque and unknowingly to Jenny Hayden's brother, Wayne. Scott impulsively jumps in Wayne's truck as he leaves to Arizona, where Jenny is, but a crash leaves them stranded in the desert. Meanwhile, Paul actually tracks down Jenny in an off-base bar, catering to the servicemen at the nearby Area 51-like installation, but he doesn't let on who he really is. In Washington, a driven, somewhat frazzled Agent Fox doesn't look too good, and his doctor is concerned for his health. I'm not going to cover a lot of the details in these. There are numerous callbacks to the feature film. You really have to watch these two episodes. But I will say the climax shows just what kind of a person Starman in the person of Paul is. This is the only two-part episode in the series. Jenny is played by Aaron Gray, who previously portrayed Colonel Wilma Deering on Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I'll say that they really saved up the visual effects budget for this one. This would have been a natural climax and stopping point for season one. But we got one more episode. Episode 22, The Test, airing May 2nd, 1987, and directed by Robert Hayes, with Jerry Harden, Madge Sinclair, and the hilarious Dub Taylor. What's the matter? I just don't feel like I belong anywhere. Join the club. A new school spells trouble for Starman and his son. There's something weird about you. Having lost contact with Jenny, Paul and Scott have returned to California, where Scott is being enrolled in a school which wants him to take a grade equivalency test, and the duo encounter issues with the public education system. Meanwhile, Paul finds out an adult co-worker is illiterate, and Paul discovers some problems can't be solved with a silver sphere. Yes, Robert Hayes made his directorial debut in this one. He bought t-shirts for the cast and crew that said, I survived Hayes first. Some of these t-shirts later made it to Starman Convention charity auctions. Then, later that same month, 
Starman was canceled by ABC. Executive producer James Hirsch blames much of Starman's ratings on the poor time slot. In fact, he originally thought ABC was joking when they told him of its original regular time slot of Fridays at 9 p.m. Central, which meant East Coast viewers had to stay up until 11 p.m. to watch it. We all agreed that it didn't belong there. I mean, what was a show that was deliberately aimed at family viewing and at a younger set doing on so late at night? Robert Hayes said, We used to say that ABC had a new style of promoting shows, and ours was the prime example. And that was, dump it on the air and see if anyone can find it. Indeed, Starman had several time slot changes, moving from Friday to Thursday, then Saturday at different times. Viewers couldn't keep up with the all-new days and times, even if these moves were somewhat promoted by the network. What day is today? It's Friday. Oh, TGIF. Uh, thank God it's Friday. <laughs> well, why is one day better than another? Well, I suppose because you get the weekends off. What's your favorite day of the week? Oh, well, uh, Saturday. Yeah, mine too. Really? Why? I don't know. I just have this feeling. Starting March 21st, Starman moved to Saturday at 8, 7 Central. In fact, Starman's cancellation surprised the show's producers, which took the move to Saturday at 7 p.m. Central to mean ABC had faith in the show. They had already begun preparing for season two and had eight scripts written. Two of these were titled My Brother's Keeper and The Candidate. Also facing the show was negative press received from critics. Howard Rosenberg from the L.A. Times said, Brother, this is a drag. Clifford Terry from the Chicago Tribune wrote, In the opener, the title character learned new terms, hair of the dog, bimbo, but before too many weeks, this particular star man may comprehend still another phrase, mid-season replacement. And I found this one from Rick Forchuk. Starman is an hour-long drama on both ABC and CBC that looks at first like it just might have potential. Special effects, an alien spacecraft heading to Earth, and a storyline adapted from the movie of the same name all serve to set what appears to be an intergalactic scene. But that's the last we see of space. All they do from here on in is talk about it. What does he know? He also didn't like ALF. Were these people watching the same show? These were typical reviews in the press, but they were all based on episode one, or as discovered later, even on the 30-minute ABC pitch video, which was never intended to be seen by the press. At the same time, the show received commendation from various sources. Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley gave the show an official commendation, noting it provides entertaining family viewing without the use of sex or violence. Various PTAs, as well as Scholastic Magazine, endorsed the series, saying, Whereas Starman appeals to viewers' intelligence as well as their imagination, whereas Starman portrays a sensitive relationship between a father and his son, whereas Starman provides a positive role model, and whereas Starman employs a sense of humor, but not at the expense of others. And of course, there was the fan community. Fans of the show found each other and formed Spotlight Starman. Soon, thousands joined their effort to spread the word of the show in the pre-internet 80s through ads in local newspapers and Variety magazine. In August of 1987, more than 60 fans gathered outside the Redondo Beach Sheraton with picket signs and a 300-foot-long petition with 5,000 signatures to bring back Starman. This was an effort to attract the attention of the National TV Critics Association, meeting with ABC to preview the new fall lineup. The following week, these petitions, as well as 3,000 letters, were delivered by Spotlight Starman to ABC Vice President John Barber. The suggestion was floated by Michael Douglas that Starman could come back in first-run syndication, which was becoming popular in the late 80s, but Columbia Television seemed to have no interest in doing that. It was thought that ABC could do a reunion TV movie, but that idea never materialized either. 
Complicating matters was Chris Barnes being cast in a regular role in Day by Day, the year following Starman. Remember, he was a miner that could only work nine or ten hours a day, meaning being on two series at the same time would have been a near impossibility. Also, Henerson Hirsch Productions seemed to dissolve within a couple of years of the show's cancellation. Starman was their last combined effort. Still, fans remained hopeful, and Spotlight Starman produced a regular fanzine called Blue Lights to keep fans updated with all things Starman. These were no eight-page zines like the ones I used to see in that era. These were 50-page efforts with updates on the actors, interviews with cast and crew, original stories, fundraising for worthy charities, as well as campaigning for the show's return. And yes, there have been conventions. Starting in 1990 and called Starman Family Cons, they are held every other year and are regularly attended by the actors, production staff, and crew. In 2006, 20 years of Starman was celebrated with the reunion of all five principal actors from the show. This year, the 15th Starman Family Con will be held. Dozens of smaller conventions and gatherings have also been held all over the world. Even though a return of Starman never happened, Spotlight Starman has raised funds and awareness for social, educational, and environmental causes, including Literacy Volunteers of America, the Peregrine Fund, the Cousteau Society, the Alzheimer's Association, Vietnam Veterans, Greenpeace, the Nature Conservancy, and the Wild Horse Sanctuary. Outside of Star Trek, I have never seen such dedicated fans. Starman will continue in a moment. Ice cream is scrunches. Ice cream? Oh, and it crunches. Ice cream. <laughs> That's why I love Nestle Crunch. Nestle Crunch ice cream bars are scrunches. That's why we love Nestle Crunch. Behind the Scenes Undoubtedly, the number one thing fans wonder about with this series is the opening segment. Viewers often wonder if they missed an episode somewhere because there are several scenes used in the opening segments that don't appear in any episode. You know, the flying plate in the jail cell, Starman and Sun shaving. These were from the proof of concept presentation video that was shown during the series pitch to ABC. The dialogue used, though, was great shorthand explaining how Paul and Scott met, even if it's not exactly how it played out in Episode 1. This was something never intended for public airing. Instead of a linear story, this 30-minute pitch video was a sequence of scenes, giving the network an idea of how the actors would interact and how the show would play. I obtained a copy courtesy Spotlight Starman, and what a treat it was to see this very early effort hosted and narrated by Michael Douglas. This presentation video is available, and a link how to obtain it is in the show notes. Starman, in the human form of Paul, seemed to have some limited telepathic, empathic, and telekinetic abilities. He would change channels on the TV by pointing at it, unlock doors by touch, and intuit emotions and serious illnesses by touch, all without using the silver spheres. Let's talk about the Silver Spheres. In the continuity of the show, they seem to amplify existing abilities that Starman had. In the original movie, he had a specific number of them, and when he used one, it would burn out, something that makes sense for a feature film with a specific runtime. But this idea doesn't lend itself so well to an ongoing series. The producers had quite a number of meetings discussing the spheres and what their limitations would be. 
So the decision was made to remove the one-time use and have the spheres work indefinitely. For a time, fans could actually buy toy light-up spheres similar to the ones used on Starman from fan catalogs like Intergalactic Trading Company, Starland, and New Eye Studio. These were not officially licensed products, but were sold as sci-fi orbs. They were slightly opaque white plastic balls that had a couple of watch batteries mounted to a circuit board with an LED light. When you touched both contacts on the bottom of the sphere, it would glow and make a sound effect. The glowing spheres used on the show were a practical special effect. The first ones they used on the set would get too hot for Robert Hayes and Chris Barnes to keep holding on to, and when the scene ended, they would immediately drop the spheres because they were so hot. It didn't take long for special effects man Steve Purcell to come up with versions where Robert and Christopher could control the intensity themselves. Once you know this, you can see this in the episodes because you'll see them hold the sphere in one hand, and with the other hand, they'll sometimes reach behind their back to control it. At the 2012 convention, Steve brought the prop spheres, both glowing and non-glowing, so they could be seen and touched. Steve, Robert, and actress Stephanie Rose staged an impromptu demonstration of how the spheres worked. In episode 20, Starscape, we see a highlighted star in the painting that Paul and Scott look at. This star, as depicted in the painting, is Algeba, which is actually a binary star system in the constellation of Leo. This bright, binary system with orange-red and yellow or greenish-yellow components is visible through a modest telescope under good atmospheric conditions. To the naked eye, the Algeba system appears to be a single star, but a telescope easily splits the pair. Also called Gamma Leonis, Algeba is only 130 light-years from Earth, so it is right in our neighborhood. In 2009, the discovery of a planetary companion around the primary star was announced. That's actually pretty incredible. The Federal Security Agency, the government agency George Fox works for in the show, was a real governmental agency. Established in 1939, the agency oversaw food and drug safety, as well as education funding and the administration of public health programs, and the Social Security Old Age Pension Plan. Secretly, the FSA was also a cover agency from 1942 to 1944 for the War Research Service, a secret program to develop chemical and biological weapons. Their purview, however, did not encompass dealing with alien life that we know of. In 1949, the agency was abolished, and most of its functions were transferred to the newly formed United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. After Starman Robert Hayes was cast in two more short-lived series, FM in 1989 and Cutters in 1993, as well as a number of TV, movie, and guest roles in various shows. He did some voice acting, becoming the voice of Tony Stark or Iron Man in three different 1990s Marvel animated productions. In 2007, a surfing accident shattered vertebra in his neck. He literally held his own head in his hands as a friend drove him 45 minutes to the nearest hospital. This move likely saved him from becoming quadriplegic or even from death. He most recently appeared in the 2016 family western, Boonville Redemption. Now 70, Hayes is somewhat active on social media and still makes some public appearances. Christopher Daniel Barnes was next cast in the sitcom Day by Day. Then later, he was cast as Greg Brady in the Brady Bunch movies in the mid-1990s. He also became a regular voice actor, appearing as the voice of Eric in The Little Mermaid, as well as the voice of Spider-Man in several animated Spider-Man series and video games over the course of 22 years. Now 45, he is active on social media and appears at conventions. In 2014, he joined Robert Hayes at The Hollywood Show, which looked like a lot of fun. Even Keith and Pinky Coogan stopped by to see Robert and Chris. These days, he pursues writing short stories, playing the guitar, practicing yoga, and rocking his beard and ponytail. Michael Cavanaugh has continued acting in numerous TV shows, including Star Trek The Next Generation, The 1991 Dark Shadows, 
The X-Files, The West Wing, Boston Public, to name just a few. Now 75, he is still acting. Patrick Culleton continued to act on TV through the mid-90s. Now 74, he is a Houdini fan and researcher and runs the website houdinisghost.com. And his book, Houdini, The Key, was published in 2010. A link to his website and book are in the show notes. Starman was repeated on ABC over the summer of 1987 and was shown internationally in Canada, Japan, New Zealand, South Africa, South Korea, Australia, and South American countries. Michael Cavanaugh will actually tell you a funny story about being recognized in a Peruvian market by two amazed boys watching Starman on TV with Agent Fox speaking in dubbed Spanish at the same time he came by their booth. Because there was only 22 episodes, the series did not enjoy a syndication run, but was shown a number of times on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 1990s. You are watching Starman on the Sci-Fi Channel. Unfortunately, episodes were often edited down for more commercial time. Information provided to Forgotten TV reveals the studio worked on remastering the series in HD from the original 35mm films from late 2007 to late 2008. Yes, the series was remastered to HD video. TV series shot on 35mm film can benefit from an HD release, just like any movie. Take a look at the Blu-rays for Star Trek The Original Series to see what I mean. But years passed, and we got no disc release. Finally, in 2012, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, in cooperation with the Warner Archive Collection, released Starman to DVD. But sadly, the decision was made to not make a Blu-ray release. You won't find it in stores. Due to the rapidly shrinking retail market for DVD sales, you can buy this only online. This is a print-on-demand DVD set using recordable DVD-Rs. As such, some viewers may experience playback issues on some devices, although I had no such problems. A couple of years ago, a remake of Starman as a feature film was announced with director Sean Levy and scriptwriter Arash Amel attached to the project, but there's been no further updates about it. Sean Levy has been a little busy with a show called Stranger Things, which may have taken some of his time. He's also slated to direct two other films, one of which is actually in pre-production and attached to produce three more, so it may be some time before we see a Starman film remake, if ever. But even if we don't, that's okay. Even if Starman never returns in film or TV form, anyone who enjoyed either will always have Starman in their pocket. What a special show this was. I greatly enjoyed revisiting it again for the first time in over 30 years. I don't understand how critics gave it bad reviews. Yes, it included the fugitive trope that by 1986 had been done numerous times, and some of the stories may have been somewhat formulaic. But beyond that, the show creators refused to give in to many of the other TV tropes that most of these shows fall into. There was no boxing episode, no rodeo episode, hallmarks of TV writing, other man-on-the-run shows fell into. Yes, Starman and Son walked the earth and helped people, but there was an absolute minimum of violence. Instead of a dumbed-down portrayal of a father, we got a level-headed, respectful parent. Whether people were disabled, mentally ill, elderly, immigrants, or even animals, they were treated with dignity, empathy, and compassion. The heart of the show was the relationship between father and son, flipping the typical paradigm which allowed the son to teach the father, at least initially. The writer's choice of making the Paul character a photographer was especially appropriate. Photographers let us see the world through a lens, which brings a focus to what is viewed through it. Sometimes, that view is favorable. Other times, it is stark reality. In this show, the eyes of Starman were like that lens. And through the eyes of Starman, hopefully, we are able to see ourselves. 
Forgotten TV News. Yes, WKRP in Cincinnati returns to television on the MeTV network. Catch WKRP every weeknight at 8.30 p.m. Central. Wolfman's Got Nards! I recently discovered Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary film directed by Andre Gower from the 1987 film The Monster Squad. Evidently, this will include footage from the 2010 cast reunion in Austin at the Alamo Drafthouse Theater. I actually had tickets to this and, due to my heavy work schedule at the time, actually forgot to go. At least you can see some of this footage online. Andre told me Wolfman's Got Nards is still on the festival circuit, but at some point will be released on DVD. Stay tuned. Hunters found them in the wilds of northern Minnesota. A boy raised from infancy by wolves. They captured him and brought him to the university where I was conducting research on human behavior. I named him Lucan. Yes, it's Lucan. Covered in episode 16 of Forgotten TV, which after 40-some years is finally getting an official home video release. The Warner Archive has released the series to DVD, and a link to that is in the show notes. Lost in Space returns to television, reinvented as a Netflix series. This new series stars Maxwell Jenkins and Parker Posey as Will Robinson and Dr. Smith. And some surprise guests also show up. Catch Lost in Space, now streaming on Netflix. Stephen Bochco, one of the most prolific creators of TV ever, has died at 74. Everybody can name Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law... Doogie Hauser, but he was also responsible for Forgotten TV-era creations like The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, The Invisible Man, Gemini Man, as well as the 1979 TV movie Vampire with Richard Lynch. The legendary Chuck McCann has died at age 83. McCann began his career as a child actor on radio. Around 1950, he got into puppetry and worked on numerous children's shows such as Rudy Kazuti, Uncle Paul's Lunchtime, The Puppet Hotel, and others. Many of them local TV shows performed live that will never be seen again. In the 1960s, he began appearing on TV in bit parts. He was Tinker Jones in a memorable appearance on Little House on the Prairie in 1974, followed by appearances on Police Woman, Starsky and Hutch, The Greatest American Hero, Santa Barbara, and Knott's Landing. Many listeners will recognize him from Far Out Space Nuts and from his many Saturday morning voices, The New Schmoo, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, Drac Pack, DuckTales, and many more. Tim O'Connor, an American actor with 120 acting credits, has died at the age of 90. Now, depending on your age, Forgotten TV listeners might remember him best from repeat appearances on 70s police dramas The FBI, Police Story, Cannon, The Streets of San Francisco, or Barnaby Jones, or perhaps his roles on Wonder Woman or Dynasty. Many, though, will recall his role of Dr. Hewer in the first season of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. U.S. Marine Corps Staff Sergeant and Drill Instructor turned actor R. Lee Ermey has died at age 74. After retiring from the military after 11 years of service, he took acting classes and played a helicopter pilot in his first film, 1979's Apocalypse Now. It was probably his role in 1987's Full Metal Jacket that earned his place in entertainment history and became who many think of when the term drill sergeant is mentioned. This led to his being cast around 40 more times in a military role, including appearances on Miami Vice, China Beach, 
Space Above and Beyond, and The X-Files, as well as voiceover roles in numerous films, TV shows, and video games. Actor Harry Anderson has died at the age of 65. Magician, TV actor, and writer, likely he is best remembered for his portrayal of Judge Harry Stone on the long-running NBC show Night Court. In his youth, he was a street magician in San Francisco. He started appearing on Saturday Night Live in the early 1980s, which led to a recurring role on Cheers as Harry the Hat, and eventually his casting on Night Court. After Night Court, Anderson was given the lead in the series Dave's World, which was based on the life of columnist Dave Barry. Around 2000, Harry sort of faded into the background and seemed to retire from acting, opening a nightclub with his wife in 2005 in New Orleans' French Quarter, where he would perform a one-man show, only months before Hurricane Katrina. After the hurricane, he made his nightclub available for town hall meetings. The following year, he and his wife moved to Asheville, North Carolina. All rise. Court is now adjourned. Bob Doreau, the musician who was instrumental in the 1970s Saturday morning Schoolhouse Rock, has died at age 94. He is credited as a writer for 27 episodes of Schoolhouse Rock, as well as being a musical performer for 23, including Conjunction Junction, Three is a Magic Number, and My Hero, Zero. Next time on Forgotten TV. It's time for time travel. Join me as I travel through time in the 70s with the TV movies, Time Travelers, The Time Machine, and the series Time Express. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with ABC, Columbia Pictures Television, Henderson Hirsch Productions, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some audio clips possible. Orville Bell, Dana Kaproff, Retro Ontario, Sean MC, Pannoni 4, The Classic Sports, WRFB 79, DVD Guy 2012, Netflix, as well as the book Science Fiction Television Series 1959 through 1989. And a profound thanks to Todd Andrews and everyone at Spotlight Starman International, whose help saved me dozens of hours of research and allowed me to include facts and audio clips I would not have found otherwise. Please visit their website for more information on their great organization or to get your own Starman Extras DVD, which includes that ABC pitch video and a lot of other goodies. A link to it is found in the show notes. And a thanks to all the listeners. I'm humbled that people actually want to listen to this show, and some surprises are in store for this year, so stay tuned. A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. If you like the show, please rate the show by giving it a star rating on iTunes or Stitcher. This goes a long way to promote the show to new listeners. And if you shop online, please click through to Amazon on any link in the show notes or website. Those extra few dollars a month are used to obtain DVDs and equipment needed to produce the show. For content in addition to what we present in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links are found at Forgotten.tv. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network, where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. I'm your host, Chris Cooling. And this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.